Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Heather Parry about her gothic horror Orpheus Builds a Girl. Heather is an award-winning writer whose short stories and non-fiction have been published internationally. She is also the co-founder and editorial director of Extra Teeth magazine, co-host of the Teenage Scream podcast and the Scottish Senior Policy and Liaison Manager for the Society of Authors. She lives in Glasgow and chairs literary events in Edinburgh and throughout Scotland. Heather has been involved in the literary scene in a big way for years, but she's had quite a meandering and frustrating route to getting her first novel published, which we talk about in this episode. Also, how she took inspiration from a true story and made it her own, and how she thought carefully about language choice and musicality when creating distinctive first-person narration. But before we hear that, here's Heather with an excerpt from Orpheus Builds a Girl. There she was, the woman I loved. So similar to how she was in life. For a moment, I forgot that she had passed away and reached out for her hand as if she could reach out and take mine in turn. Her skin... Dry but rubbery while she lived had remained as such, and while desiccation had occurred, there was no visible evidence of putrefaction or excessive rot. She had dried rather than decayed. It was only then that I recalled the pictures in my grandmother's books, the monks who claimed to have transcended the very concept of death, who were rendered as artworks, as things to be worshipped for millennia. I touched her body, felt her achievement beneath me. She was glorious. It is now, of course, accepted that the surrounding environment has an enormous impact on a corpse, as does the pre-death diet and lifestyle of the dead. Yet we have previously failed to understand that by treating a dead body as a spent thing, we have robbed our loved ones of any chance they have of returning to their physical form after death. For we have not just discarded it, but have placed it in the worst possible conditions to delay its decomposition. Indeed, by throwing bodies into the pyre, we remove their existence on this plane entirely. And how could a soul begin to return to such a vessel? Ash cannot support life, 
and so these souls are destined to expire on whichever plane they exist post-death. Increasingly, it became clear to me that we are engaged, as a race, in a type of genocide, a grand theft, and that we steal from the recently dead any chance they might have of returning to us. We kill our dead for a second time. In this, we are all guilty. Hi Heather, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on today to talk about your debut novel, Orpheus Builds a Girl. Hi Chloe, it's lovely to be here. I just thought this book was amazing and I'm so looking forward to getting down and talking about all the nitty gritty and your kind of process and inspirations behind it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm in that kind of month post-publication period, so it's really nice to have an affirmation. So thank you. (laughs) So can you start by telling us what Orpheus Builds a Girl is about? Yes. So the book is a dual narrative. Um, One of the narratives is um, a kind of autobiography written by a German doctor, Wilhelm von Thor. And he's kind of presenting his life as a as a man of science, if you will, and telling you the kind of medical achievements that he was trying to work towards. And he also tells you about his relationship with a young Cuban-American woman, Luciana. And in opposition, I don't want to say opposition, in uh, tandem with that, <laughs> there is the narrative of Luciana's sister, Gabriela. Um, who tells a very different story of the way that relationship played out. She also talks about their childhood. Wilhelm talks about his childhood as well. And then um, it's such a funny book to try and summarize because I don't want to sort of give away the main plot point, but then it's not really a secret what the main plot point is. So what do you think? Should I say? Um, I think you can hint, but I think I, I mean, I knew before I went into this that it was based on a true story, but I didn't look up the true story. And I would say, do not look up the true story because it'll give away the kind of plot of the novel. So I'd say, let's tread carefully. Give us give us a little bit more, but not too much. Okay. I will say that Luciana becomes ill. Luciana is ill with tuberculosis. Wilhelm is very obsessed with the idea that he can save her, but he cannot save her. And that is only about halfway through the book. So that probably tells you that there is something quite dark that Mm. goes on after that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I would say if you haven't read this book yet, don't go and read the story that it's based on, because I think it's it's more fun to go in with no idea of what's going to happen and have that kind of, I mean, you get a sense from the beginning, I think, of what's going to happen, but you don't fully find out the, the full story. So I wanted to ask you a bit more about your inspiration because obviously it is based on a true story, although you have made it your own. And I can see why it appealed to you because it's such a mad story, but so fascinating because it's about so many different things. I was wondering what it was that inspired you about this story in particular, but also where did you first hear this story and what made you think this needs to be a novel? So I it would would have been about 2017, tw- early 2018, um, and I was listening to This American Life, you know, the the very, very popular podcast. I, it's made me very aware that I do the vocal fry thing that the <laughs> all of the, This American Life people do now. 
But I was listening to an episode of that when I was in my kitchen in Edinburgh. And they started telling the story of this, this dark love story that had happened in Key West in Florida. But, you know, and it was kind of 1920s, 1940s was the period they were talking about. And it was so fascinating to me because, as you say, the, the story itself is really, really interesting and weird and problematic. But for me, it was the reaction of the people in the town that was the most interesting. So they tell this story as tale of undying love. And that absolutely horrified me. And, you know, there was, they they told the story itself, which is which is awful and has different layers of systemic abuse and sexism and, and misogyny and this kind of stuff. But it was, they were interviewing an older, I remember she was a Catholic teacher. I don't know why that stuck in my head. And they were talking about the the whole story and they said like, what do you think of it? And and she said, well, he just loved her so much and he just couldn't stand to let her go. And I was like, um, I, <laughs> it's really not how I understand the story. And then she said something awful, like I wouldn't have a bad thing to say about him. <laughs> At least he didn't chop her up and throw her in the ocean like some people do. And I'm like, is this the bar? Is that... <laughs> such a low bar for men's treatment of women that if people literally don't chop up your body and throw you in the sea they've somehow achieved a level of <laughs> of goodness I, I was just like this is so horrifying and you know I I don't believe this is what love is I don't believe that's what that story is so it really wormed its way into the back of my head. And the the story itself, the real story is very gothic. It's got a lot of you know what I what I referred to as trad goth, <laughs> as if that's a kind of TikTok movement. <laughs> Hashtag trad goth. Um, it's got a lot of trad goth elements, and um, I just couldn't I just couldn't let it go. It played into a lot of my fasc- fascinations and obsessions. You know the sexualization of uh, particularly marginalized women. The the way society excuses the behaviors of bad men, um, all these kind of things. And these are questions that have just become more and more pertinent. You know, like the, the main question is really who 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 owns a woman's body? When does a woman ever own her own body? Um, and, you know, I mean, since the since I finished the book, Roe versus Wade has been repealed. And, you know, that horrifyingly, it means these questions are, are not becoming less pertinent. They're becoming more pertinent, which is quite depressing, really. Yeah. And that question particularly plays in, I would say, in the latter third of the book, where we get onto a sort of another part of the story. And the, uh, there are elements of the story that when I looked up the true story afterwards, I just assumed that you had invented some elements of this particular story again I won't give away what and then I was like I can't believe that actually happened it's so I mean it makes an amazing story but it's so like out of this world unbelievable and it and it fitted so well in your novel and that's why I thought you know it's got to be something that you've come up with but actually it did actually happen and particularly when you're thinking about the reaction of the people in that town to what had gone on 
um, because, I mean, you, you said you mentioned about that woman saying, well, at least he didn't chop her up and throw her into the ocean. I think what he did was worse. So yeah. I have to say that. <laughs> so how how did you go about making it your own then? Because um, obviously the names are different. You've changed the time frame as well. Were there other things mm-hmm. that you did to kind of make it your own story? Yeah, um, it's a very interesting question of what do you put as a realistic thing? So I um, I've actually written a novel before this that I've I've subsequently shelved, which was based on um, I lived in Latin America for three years, and it was very much based on my experiences in the expat community. I say expat with huge air quotes because, of course, it's just an immigrant community, um, and a lot of that stuff was very closely based on what actually happened and these uh, strange little communities that form in in expat um, societies and people I mean I had to pull things out of that novel because you literally wouldn't have believed like real things that really happened you would not have believed them or I remember people saying oh my god this character is so good like he's so unbelievable and I was like no no they're they're real things that that person really said and did so I think you can actually get away with more weird stuff in real life because when you put it into a book people go that's just unbelievable so yeah it was a, a strange balancing act to be like well what of these kind of horrific real details will I put in and um it you know it's not it's inspired by the, the novel I would, sorry the real the real things I would say um and has brought in aspects of different kind of similar cases as well um I always knew I wanted to shift the time period so I wanted to bring in the second world war and I wanted to bring in the context of the Cuban revolution um I you know the I don't know anything about her family so all of the stuff about her family is invented all of the stuff about his childhood is um invented and kind kind of based on some things I know about the Japanese fascist uh, writer Yukio Mishima who is a god fascinating man troubling uh, man but yeah I just wanted to I knew I wanted Dresden the bombing of Dresden to be a really central part of his uh, self-narrative so I knew I wanted to shift it you know, the 50s in Cuba, which is when they're kind of growing up with such a, it's such a fertile ground for narrative. Um, and yeah, so I, I kind of very quickly departed from having to be true to the story and instead was trying to be true to the kind of emotional resonance of the story. Um, and yeah, it is kind of like, how far can I push people's disbelief, you know? Um mm-hmm which is, I suppose, a thing with the Gothic always. You're always sort of pushing a little bit further. And also you kind of like, what will people stay with me? Like, how how horrible can I go? And <laughs> readers <laughs> readers will stay with me. And I suppose you're always writing for yourself, aren't you, as a reader? And I, I will stay through quite a lot of horror in a book. So that's what I went for. Yeah, I'm, I was more than happy with how gross it was. And uh, I <laughs> I know there's some people I feel like I have to say in advance like you kind of need a strong stomach for this book but I mean I loved it one of my favorite books is uh Tender is the Flesh I don't really read that oh, yeah uh, Augustina by Stereo. yeah 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 it's and great I, and I love that and I I recommended it to um in an in an article I had to write and 
my publicist said, I am never reading this book. It sounds horrific. But I was like, but it's amazing. You've got to read it. So I've got, I I love gross things. So I'm more than happy. (laughs) Do you know what? I think though it changes as you get older. So if I can, this this really outs me as what kind of teenager I was, but my dissertation at university was on American Psycho, (laughs) which, uh, yeah, I was, I've always been this kind of person. And, um, at the time even when I was 21 it was pretty bad I mean I I remember I almost threw up on a train a southwest train to Surrey not because I was going to Surrey although it could have been and I picked it up having not read it in maybe 15 years I picked it up in a bookshop and just kind of flicked to kind of close to the back and read a bit and I was like oh my god this is absolutely horrifying (laughs) this is so much more disgusting than I remembered and I was like god I don't know I don't know if I could stomach it in the same way now. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about the kind of levels of disgusting, because I know in your acknowledgements, you wrote that you um, basically had some feedback in, in your writing process and certain friends of your, yours had said, make it more disgusting. Um, and obviously there's some really macabre image, imagery and, and Wilhelm, as, Wilhelm as a character really gets under your skin. I think that's probably the bit that's more horrifying than anything else um so was it a challenge for you to kind of work out how much was too much or were you kind of quite happy to get into all the nitty-gritty details of what happens to a corpse I uh loved it to be honest with you (laughs) I'm a very physical (laughs) I'm a very physical writer and I always have been. I'm also a very sort of physical, biological person. Like I, when I was young, I had like really, really severe eczema when I was like a real, like a baby um, up to like, you know, kind of, you know, primary school kind of age. And my, when I was really young, my parents had to wrap me in bandages uh, when I went to bed every night. So my kind of like understanding of the world has always been that your body is a kind of porous thing. Like the, it sounds, it sounds very overly kind of literary to say this, I think, but it's like the barrier between you and the rest of the world isn't infallible because I mean, like, you know, huge, like swathes of my skin would come off and you would never know if you're going to wake up like bleeding. And it's quite gothic as well, because you, you would like scratch yourself in the night when you didn't know so you'd wake up and there'd be this kind of situation that you had to deal with and the situation is your body um so I've always been a picker I've always been a look at the roadkill kind of person you know very like what's going on in the body what's what's happening you know what happens when these things change and I also think it's it's amazing like our bodies are amazing things you know I I said this at a launch event the other night, but you know, these Instagram accounts that are like the divine feminine and like the, the womb. And I'm like, yeah, but what about like the divine kidney or, (laughs) you know, your lungs, the way your lungs work is a miracle or your skin. God, Mm. your skin's amazing. So doing that kind of research and that kind of writing is really interesting to me. Um, I mean, I must be on some kind of a watch list from my Google search history, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, you must have done some pretty deep dive Google searches or did you, I mean, did you speak to anyone that works in like, if you want to call it the death industry, did you speak to anyone that was kind of like an expert in that sort of thing? 
Um, I didn't, but I did read a lot of Kath- uh, Caitlin Doty's books and Carla Valentine. I don't know if you know her. She's a, a is she a mortician? She does a lot of stuff with like you know po- post death bodies, if you will. Um, and yeah, Caitlin Doty writes a lot about the processes of particularly the American death industry and what happens to a body. And she is very critical of that, I, which I, I love. I love that she wants to bring people closer to what would be a natural death, you know, because we do a lot of things to bodies um, that we don't need to. And it's for capitalism. It's it's just for for these places to make more money. But yeah, as to the kind of, I, I'm really lucky that I have an amazing uh, writing group who includes um, Kirsty Logan, Camilla Gradova, and Heather Palmer, who's the comics writer from Glasgow. And they are the kind of people that you can WhatsApp someone and say, quick, quick, uh, how long does the bloat stage of decomposition last? And they will tell you immediately without having to look it up <laughs> because they've all done this research as well. And they, you know, they are all very physical writers as well. Um, I don't know if anyone's read uh, Camilla's debut novel that's just come out, Children of Paradise. It's very, very physical. Kirsty's work, you know, particularly something like Things We Say in the Dark, which is about a lot about pregnancy and what happens to women's bodies. They're all very physical. So they kind of, um, they encourage me. And I don't know whether that's a good thing overall, <laughs> but it's good for me. I like it. You also said that they challenged you in their feedback. Can you remember what kind of things that they pushed you on to make you a better writer? Yeah, I mean, so originally the first version of the book was just Wilhelm. It was just Wilhelm's story from his perspective. And I mean, I was obviously really inspired by books like Lilita, um, really, really heavily inspired by The People in the Trees by Hanya Yanagihara. In fact, this um, thumb tattoo is from that book. And I really love the way that those kind of narratives make you complicit in what's happening. And they force you to reappraise your position in the society that lets these kind of things happen. And that's a thing I really wanted to do through Wilhelm. I wanted to make you be in his perspective. Um, But it was a real slog. I mean, you take away all of the familial love from this book. You take away, like, love of her sister. And it is just, it's really dark. (laughs) It was, I also... I wanted I always wanted Luciana to be a kind of negative space um in the book. And she still is. And it never occurred to me to make Luciana a character because I wanted her to not exist in the middle. I wanted I wanted her story to be one of a story that she'd been removed from and that to be the point of the book. But yeah, they came back and were like, it's you you're just gonna need a character narrative uh for the sake of your readers. And then so it was a challenge because then I had to go away and write basically another third of the book or something Mm. but it really did pay off because that allowed me to use her narrative to to not correct but problematize his narrative and it allowed me to do things like pull out the the you know the the sort of familiar reaction to the cuban revolution and also kind of talk about the fact that no one really knows a real story no one ever has access to the truth really because if you think about your own childhood, how you understand your childhood is so affected by the way your parents frame it, the way your family politics 
frames what's going on outside the home. You know, our memories are fallible. When people die, when we lose people, we narrativize them in ways that aren't really always the truth. So that was really, it was a great opportunity to explore that stuff, even though I'm sure at first, like you do when you get any feedback, you go, no, I don't want to. It's perfect. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you did write Gabriella's point of view because I loved her chapters just as much, actually. And I think it is probably helpful to have that break from the intensity of Wilhelm's point of view and his, you know, what he's doing in his chapters. Um, I was going to ask you really about the kind of framing device that you've got with this novel because they the both the opening chapters are them kind of setting the scene and saying this is why I'm writing this and I'm I need you to know this is the kind of true version of events and they both give that perspective. Um, why did you choose to? I guess the Gabriella part was a later part, but why did you choose to tell the story in this way and not just kind of have it as a straightforward? story a kind of dual narrative story you kind of framed it as a you as the reader need to know this why did you decide to do that um that would be the gothic influence on me so um I was you know as a reader very much on the goosebumps point horror Stephen King gothic literature pipeline (laughs) which I think so many people who write dark literature were on that same pipeline and um I have always liked really dark books, but in university I took a course on Gothic literature, which just absolutely blew my mind, shaped my personality and interests and writing for, I assume, the rest of my life. And that is a real Gothic trope, the kind of epistolary, you know, fragments of a story that you get and you have to put something together yourself. Like I'm I'm rereading Dracula at the moment through the the Dracula Daily substack. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens there is that they send you the letter or the diary entry of the real day that you're on from the book. So it's a real interesting way to to revisit that book. Um, And it's it's been a real lesson in why that book works so well. And it's people's different perspectives, but it's also seeing the different pressures that each character is under and you you worry for the characters when you haven't heard from them for a couple of days, which is really uh, cute, I think. <laughs> like, oh my God, how is Jonathan? And then he drops in your inbox and you're like, oh, thank God. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that kind of non, you know, the kind of fragmented story and the a book that kind of vies for your belief through that, I really enjoy. I mean, I think it was it like, did the castle, the castle of Otranto does that, I think, where it says this is a real thing or, you know, so many Gothic novels do this like this. I really you must believe this. I really need you to believe this, which immediately sets you up to disbelieve it, which is part of the fun of, of Gothic novels. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just that perspective. And I've, I've really started to wonder if I can actually tell a straight story like from <laughs> from beginning to end, because, I mean, a lot of my um, I've written other novels and they tend to always have different dual or triple narratives or they tend to be quite fragmented. Um, and my short stories, I really like framing devices. I really like strange structures. And I was like, maybe it's just because I can't do it. And I couldn't just sit down <laughs> and do the, the you know, the Gabriela, um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez sort of like, I'm going to tell you about this hundred year period of history straight from the start to the end. I think maybe I just can't do it, Chloe. 
Well, I guess we will have to find ways of making writing fun for ourselves and maybe that's your way. Maybe, yeah. I'm just, it's, I'm going <laughs> to jump over my lack of talent in that area and try and make it. <laughs> cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. <laughs> so I, I also want to ask you about the title um, and if you can tell us where that came from. And um, my my Greek mythology is is not great. So if you can explain... Orpheus for us that'd be fantastic you know I'm so bad at coming up with titles Chloe the original (laughs) the original title for this was was um completely different it was actually taken from the epigraph which is from um Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides and that is where my writing group pushed back they were like yeah it's really working but obviously you can't have that title (laughs) and I'm like oh god but I liked the title and obviously now you look back and you go that's a nightmare and I kept coming up with stuff and they kept going nope and I at one point I just had an entire page of just potential titles and I was just throwing them out and they were like nope 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 and I was like oh my god this one this book will never have a title and we talked about what it needed you know it needs to the the book is a book of self-delusion so you needed something that reflected the main character's self-delusion but spoke to this kind of grand, um, you know, like almost like hysterically uh, romantic or, you know, in his mind, this kind of hysterically romantic situation that he thinks has got in his hands. So Orpheus builds a girl. I also, my Greek and kind of, you know, Roman all that stuff I didn't seem to maybe it's because I went to a comprehensive but we didn't seem to learn that so it's only... I not, no I have never learned any of that so all these Greek mythology retellings are French to me because I've got no I have no background in that at all <laughs> well I I didn't realize this was a lack in me until <laughs> I started hanging around with the other writers 
and I'll bring a short story to a workshop and someone will say oh that's like later on the swan and I go yes that's what I was going for and I'm writing down later in the swan with huge question marks and then have to go away and look it up I was like yes I didn't go to private school maybe that's where you all learned that I don't know but the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice is that um Eurydice dies and she goes down to Hades and Orpheus is told that he can go back and get her but when he's leading her out of Hades he isn't allowed to look back at her so he gets to the the kind of if you will front door of Hades and he steps over and he looks back but she is still in Hades so then she is not allowed out so she's taken taken back down to Hades um so he attempts to rescue her but she is taken from him at the last minute which is Wilhelm's understanding of what happens in this story. Um, it's not my understanding of what happens in the story, and I hope it's not readers' understanding either. But I thought that is a really good reference to make. And the idea of building a girl, that speaks to, I think, the like Frankenstein influences, which are obviously at play in this book. Um, so yeah, I had done a lot of kind of mashing together of concepts to see what worked. And I just went, Office builds a girl, and they went, Yes. <laughs> well, well, it thank works really, it works really well. And I only wish that I had the background knowledge to realize that at the time. But now you've explained it, I feel enlightened. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will tell me I'm completely wrong in my understanding of that, and uh, it'll be awful. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about voice because every review I've seen and my own feelings about this book is that because both point of view, both chapters, um, both narrative, sorry, are told from a first person point of view, both voices need to be so distinct and they completely are. I mean, you're, you're basically talking about two characters who are polar opposites and both of your chapters feel so different in terms of tone and language and also reading experience so how did you approach making their voices so distinct? Was it something that kind of you found came quite easily for you? Yeah, well, he uh, Wilhelm's voice came very easily to me. You know, you could get a sense of who he was from, from the research I'd done. But also he does have that, again, very gothic, um, kind of like romance era gothic. That kind of grandiosity. And I knew that, to, to for you to believe that he believes the things he believes <laughs> what a sentence um he you would have to be very self-important and he would have to be covering himself in the languages of science and the languages of love and the languages of education and a very particularly European type of education so he came quite easily once I had him and as I said the first draft was just him so it was quite um it flowed very well I think because there are, you know, there are a lot of the kind of um, pomposity of books like uh, Frankenstein, you know, the doctors and these kind of things came came through a lot, I think. Gabriella's voice was more difficult. Um, like I lived in, I lived in Latin America for three years. So I kind of had a sense of the um, sort of Latin American Spanish inflections and What's really interesting in in Latin American Spanish is that a lot of the words, a lot of the meanings of words are context 
uh, dependent in a way that isn't the same in English because we have so many words. We have really, really specific words, whereas in other languages, context changes the meaning more so than it does in English even. So I knew that when you had a native Spanish speaker speaking English, the language would have to be simpler in a way. And, you know, the kind of, I think her language has got sort of more of a musicality, whereas his is a bit more kind of stark and a bit more sort of pointed. Um, But I find slipping into character voice quite easy. And I think that's because I don't really feel very confident in my own writer's voice just as myself. Like, you know, if you're writing a personal essay or something, I don't feel incredibly confident writing as myself. So putting on a character's kind of, you know, outfit, that is much easier for me and feels like you're performing someone you're performing someone on the page so I really like that how do you feel about writing character voice um I kind of enjoy it but I sometimes get halfway through a section of writing and I wonder whether I've slipped back into my own voice and then Mm. I have to read it back and think okay does this work I'm writing a character at the moment where it's a very deliberate um, different style to the other chapters and I'm really having to think but I enjoy the kind of construction of nice sentences I suppose um, and mm-hmm. I've always said to people I know I can write a nice sentence it's more big plot stuff I find difficult so I think mm-hmm. when I'm on a sentence level is the stuff I enjoy whereas when it's like where's the conflict or the tension in this chapter and where's this going that's the harder part for me yeah no I'd agree with that yeah there's kind of like god what do people what do people want what do these people want <laughs> but I'm writing a nice sentence leave me alone <laughs> I wonder as well if um if where you're from has a an impact on how easily you see the intonation of the people's speech or the way they express themselves, even in written words. So, I mean, I'm from uh, Rotherham, which is just between Sheffield and Doncaster in South Yorkshire. And I mean, like, I can tell someone who's from Doncaster, which is 20 minutes down the road because of certain, like they'll say babby, whereas we would say baby. Like my accent is completely gone from, from living abroad and these kind of things. But I used to have a very, very strong South Yorkshire accent. And you could, it was literally like, like, like I know you're from Doncaster because the way you're saying this. So there's always a kind of preoccupation with listening. And now I was out of the country for six years and obviously really didn't hear a lot of people from South Yorkshire. And now I live in the UK and have done for eight years and I still can't stop it. So if I hear a kind of flat vowel, I'm like, where are you from? Are you <laughs> Manchester, Lancashire from that area? And it's like, it's weird now because everyone's from here. Do you know what I mean? Like It's not a thing that I need to be doing anymore, finding out people from the north of the UK because I live so close to it. But I find myself doing it as well with certain people's way of speaking. I, feel, I find myself aping them in conversation. So my poor friends from the Wirral, I can't talk to them without starting to do it kind of back at them, which is... <laughs> really unlovable personality trait but it really is useful when you're a writer because if then you know a character is from the world I know the words that they will use I know the construction of their sentences um and obviously you would go back and check it and say is that real but I find yeah slipping into that kind of voice quite quite easy 
I want to talk a little bit more about your writing journey and your kind of route to publication because I know in private you've said to me that it's been quite meandering and frustrating and I think you've had a couple of different agents and it's taken a while because I mean you've you've been in the publishing industry for over a decade doing different things so I was wondering whether you could tell us basically how you came to get your agent and your book deal. Yes I can so I have been in the publishing industry for about 12 well a bit more than that now but it was in a different country so when I was 21 I moved to Toronto because I was jealous of everyone in my year at university who got to do a year abroad and was like well I'm moving to um Canada and did (laughs) and um this is when you could get a student visa so I worked in like a smoothie shop for a while and then got a paid internship at a very very small publishing company where I worked on like non-fiction books and stuff and um at this point I kind of hadn't let myself really access the the fact that I wanted to be a writer I wanted to be a novelist um I'd been doing a lot of non-fiction writing I was a music journalist in in uni and stuff but I'd always pushed away creative writing like fiction because it was too it was too hard it's too much of a something that I wanted you know what I mean I couldn't stand the idea of trying and failing which probably says a lot about me as a second child (laughs) Uh, but yeah I was out of the country and then I moved back in 2014 I moved to Scotland and I didn't know anyone I didn't know anyone in the industry I had never had any formal creative writing training or anything like that and I actually got do you remember the mentoring project yeah which was uh women mentoring other women for free within mm. the industry which was amazing Kerry Hudson set it up I think and I actually got picked by Kirsty Logan who obviously is now a huge part of my writing life and that was great that was the first time I really learned to like what a short story should be and how I could put it together and how to take my ideas and make them into a story um, and then I, I mean, yeah, I, you mentioned like I, I run a magazine and I started that three years ago, but this, I mean, a lot of this stuff was just me trying to sort of get into even the writing communities, I suppose, and, and that kind of thing. And I started chairing literary events basically as a way to get over my fear of public speaking because I really hated it. Like I really couldn't stand the idea of like speaking in front of people. And I was like, well, if I want to be a writer, that's going to be part of my job. So I started doing that and it really did help. Now I'm like really comfortable on the stage, really comfortable speaking about things. So all the while I was kind of trying to work on these little bits of skills and, you know, go for these mentorships, go for these um, different types of things residencies I got a couple of awards early on and stuff and then I'd written a novel uh, based on my time living in Latin America as I said and I got an agent for that and that agent simply didn't do anything for a year he didn't give me any feedback he didn't you know it was always oh yes we'll do that we'll do that I mean I understand that he probably had too many clients and not enough time but I it was incredibly frustrating I I won a I won an emerging writer award in 2016 and my brother would keep saying to me oh you're still emerging and I'm like <laughs> yeah you get I am trying <laughs> it's really hard actually so I ended up breaking up with that agent and by this time I'd written the first draft of this book 
And I knew that the original novel I had was just not going to be the correct book to try and sell because uh, it would be very different. It was very much more kind of Brett Easton Ellis kind of inspired. And it was just different to everything else I was writing. It was different to my short stories. It would not have been, that book wouldn't have set me up with the correct audience. So I broke up with him uh, and he was very nice about it, but he had been useless. And then <laughs> I actually had an American agent get in touch with me off the back of having read one of my short stories in the Sting and Fly, the Irish literary magazine. Um, and she was very passionate and she tried to sell the book in the States and couldn't. Similarly, she was trying to get me a UK agent at their sister agency. But, you know, the person that she wanted went off on leave because someone close to her died and all these kind of things happened, right? People have lives, people have professional careers and things sometimes don't work. And I, she was, she was actually brilliant, but it just didn't work out. And I ended up saying to her, okay, I think I need a primary agent here. Um, And I was going to sign with someone at the start of the pandemic. And she simply ghosted me to the extent that my friends were like, she might actually be be dead like you know what I mean that might have happened she isn't I've checked so that was like a real that felt like a real blow because trying to get an agent is the worst part of the process I think it's you just feel like you're shouting into the void um I know a lot of people are still in this process and it really really wears you down it really grinds you down especially when you don't live in London you didn't go to the private schools you didn't go to the you know, the Oxford or Cambridge, you hadn't already made these connections. You don't live five minutes around the corner from the Bloomsbury office. You feel very separate from it. And I got really mad and wrote uh, what will hopefully be my second novel, (laughs) which is, I think, good. And then I actually got my agent through um, winning the launch prize of her agency. So she, my agent's called Emma, and she set up the Laxfield um, Literary Agency in association with Blake Friedman, but she she launched a prize and I put Orpheus in for it. And she actually was like, oh, what else do you have? And I sent her my short stories and these kind of things. And she, yeah, I won that prize and she signed me off the back of it. And thank God that she did. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was absolutely the end of my tether. It is it can be so demoralizing. And you think, am I just gonna kind of languish in my little writing office in Glasgow forever? So yeah, that worked out, thankfully. Yeah, because I started following you on Twitter years ago because I read a story you wrote in Mislexia and kind of really loved it. And then I saw you kind of interviewing people for the Edinburgh um, Festival and saw you around a lot. And then obviously um, Extra Teeth, which is your lit mag, which is fantastic. If anyone hasn't already become a subscriber, then you should do that now. Um, Thank you. I wondered whether kind of interviewing all these writers and being a part of the industry but almost being a part of it but not being part of it because you hadn't managed to sell your novel yet was that something that kind of kept you going did it keep your kind of keep nourishing your your want and your kind of creative practice because you were looking at all these other amazing people and seeing all this other amazing kind of literature and just being so hungry for it yourself did it kind of keep you going or did it make you think this is never going to happen for me. I I think I'm really lucky in that I know a lot of writers now, um, a lot of early career writers, but a lot of more established writers too. And I found that people in Scotland, at least, are really generous 
um you make really good relationships just through having met someone in the year at the book festival one time or um they've seen you do something or you know you even know each other on twitter and then someone one day we were talking about this before someone says do you want to go out for a drink and you do and you really get on um so in a way i kind of come to understand came to understand that this is not a unique experience and a lot of people go through this and again if you are outside of the kind of london publishing bubble it is harder for you you know we always make a joke in Scotland that people will say, oh, we'll go out for a coffee next time you're in London. And you go, cool, I haven't been to London for three years. You know, it's like it's like four and a half hours on the train <laughs> and the train is expensive. How about we have a coffee when you come to Glasgow? <laughs> Which people should, because it's great. Um, but yeah, it did. Having that kind of community really, really helped me. And yeah, there are moments when you're like, oh my God, why isn't this happening for me? But then you go, well, maybe the book I've written isn't good enough. I mean, I always say to people, you really need to be able to throw away something you've written and do something else. I think people can get really obsessed with having written a first novel and you'd have to go, sometimes they're not very good. I mean, I'm really glad the one I wrote, you know, I didn't, I eventually didn't try and sell it because I don't think it would have been good enough. So you just have to kind of keep your head down and keep going. Um, and yeah, the the chairing people has been a great inspiration to me. I mean, I just love talking to people about their work, about the process. I love chatting about art. You, I interview people like Akala and you're like, oh my God, this man is so knowledgeable. The way he presents himself and the things he knows is so amazing. And you go, you're kind of taking mental notes of how he responds to an audience and how he talks about his ideas and stuff. So that's very inspiring. But I mean... I interviewed Jarvis Cocker this year for the book festival. And that was kind of like strangely quite emotional for me because I didn't, I'm, I don't come from a place where people became well known from, um, you know, like God, I mean, the people that you would know from Rotherham it, when I was growing up were like the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> One of whom swore at a person I know crossing the road once anyway. Um, you know, this was kind of like before, the the big sort of Yorkshire music thing happened in the early 2000s before the Arctic Monkeys got big and stuff and um you just didn't know people who'd gone on to become well known I didn't even know people who worked on the arts let alone people who worked in the publishing industry um in fact I remember I remember being taken on a school trip to see Simon Armitage um perform somewhere and just being like oh my god you can you can sound like we kind of sound and be on a stage like it really hadn't ever really occurred to me that you could do that so it was really nice interviewing Jarvis who sounds you know still sounds like he's from where he's from in Sheffield and they pulped and get famous for like 15 years I mean he was in his early 30s when when they really became big and he started that band in the school so that kind of stuff you're just like yeah you just kept on doing what you were doing and eventually you became well known for it or you got to you got the opportunity to have the career more, more so than being well known you just want to be able to do it as your job so yeah that stuff you know people telling you where they went what they went through to get to mm. the start of their career even was has always been very inspiring is there anything that anyone's ever said in an interview that you've done um has anyone given you any advice or have you heard something that someone said that has helped you or inspired you Mm, oh god I've done so many now <laughs> uh, 
I love, I mean, people like Atessa Moshfeg. I interviewed her this year and the way she talks about her own work and just needing to write to her sensibilities and not worrying too much about who will read it. Um, I like that a lot. And I loved, it really inspired me when people just focused on their own craft. You know, this is what I want to do. I want to become a better writer. That was really helpful to me because you can't obsess about everything else. You can't really, I mean, once a book has gone out of your hands, it's not really yours. You don't have any, you can't have any impact on how people react to it. You can't decide what prizes you're going to win or how much money you're going to get for a deal. But what you can focus on is your process and becoming better. So hearing people talk about that focus was really important to me and has really helped me, I think, because you you really can't control anything mm. other than what you're doing. And being able to throw it away if it's not good enough, being able to hear criticism for what it is, especially when it's constructive, that is really important. And just like keeping your head down, keep your head down and focus on it. So anytime that anyone talked about that, I think that really, really fed into me and was like, that's what I have to do. And people who talk about their career as a career, Mm. rather than just kind of one book or one thing they've done, people who had their eyes on the prize, the prize being a lifelong career and what you want to do. Yeah, that was very helpful. Yeah, because I think there's so many aspects of being a writer in particularly now when it's like you've got to have a TikTok, you've got to be on Instagram, you've got to be making reels, you've got to be, I don't know, doing all sorts of things. And I think that's a distraction. And although some writers really enjoy it and some writers, you know, I love Twitter. I'm on Twitter far too much. But um, I often get people ask me, like, what about social media? Do I have to do it? And I always say, like, if you enjoy it anyway, then do it. But if you don't enjoy it, a, people will be able to tell and B, it'll have no benefit to your career whatsoever because really the most important bit is the writing and that's the only bit you can control anyway. I mean, you might mm-hmm. sell a couple of couple more copies because you've had a conversation on Twitter, but in the grand scheme of things, the thing that matters and the things that you can control is the writing and it is your craft. Mm. Yeah, I've uh, my relationship with Twitter is definitely changing, I think. Um and you, it, there is this idea of FOMO that you have got to be on it. Um, TikTok, I won't do it because I'm simply too old. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I, I'm just like, no, I get it's so popular. And I have got it on my phone, but I just think it's too much. I, I can't cope with more than maybe two social media. That'll do. <laughs> I can't look directly at it. It's like a, it's like the vision of hell from Event Horizon. Like, it's, it's, I have to turn my head away. And it's nice because sometimes people will send me the book on TikTok and that, and people say nice things about it. And that's really nice. Um, but it so quickly becomes your job. Like, mm. um, you know, you see people demanding on Twitter that people respond to something and you're like, this isn't their job to sit yeah. on Twitter all day and, and have reactions. So you briefly mentioned it already. But my final question is, what are you working on next or what is your hopeful next book going to be about? Well, my next book will be coming out uh, next year. It hasn't been announced yet. Um, this one I definitely can't say, but I have been contracted to write a nonfiction book on one of my big, big obsessions. Again, I can't say what that is, but mm-hmm. once it comes out, you'll be like, "Yeah, that's uh, yeah." She's been <laughs> trying to she's been trying to write that book for about six years now. Um, and then, so that will be yeah. And then the paperback of Orpheus will come out next year as well. 
Um, my I have written a second novel, and it is, um, it's foodie, mm-hmm. it's claustrophobic, it's queer, it's set in kind of turn of the century London turn of the previous century not turn of this century mm-hmm. <laughs> just realized you can't say that now because we're in a completely different one um and yeah that is very again very physical it's very bodily and all that kind of stuff very grim um and I've also written another short story collection which isn't quite finished yet so I'm, I'm just stacking them up Chloe <laughs> you're just writing loads so you're just making me very nervous because when people write lots or they have tons of ideas it just makes me very scared because I'm not an ideas person and I say this all the time um but I'm so excited to see what you write next and um yeah I cannot wait and grim and bodily is just like perfection so yeah I can't wait that's my niche now I can't get out of it <laughs> Heather, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much, Chloe. It was a real joy. That was Heather Parry talking about her gothic horror, Orpheus Builds a Girl, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.